For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. A killing in Central Park. After dark, Central Park becomes a maze. The trails that look so friendly in the daylight turn inward and twist. Long gone are the joggers, the dog walkers, the sunbathers. Now enter the junkies, the drifters, the drunks. On May 22, 1997, a burly 44-year-old named Michael McMorrow entered the park. But he wasn't lost in the maze. Night after night, he would leave his elderly mother in her apartment on 2nd Avenue and 93rd Street and bring a brown paper bag of booze to Central Park. Ever since he first tasted liquor, in a park across from the major Deegan Expressway, it was the secret shame of his life. He'd tried Alcoholics Anonymous before, but nothing really helped. He tried not to let it interfere with his work in real estate, managing a building on West 76th, but it sometimes got the better of him anyway. Just last year, he'd been thrown out of his friend's wedding reception after getting blackout wasted. But in the maze of Central Park at night, Michael's drinking wasn't shameful. It was just a way of connecting with others. He liked to wander through the jumble of trails up to Strawberry Fields, where he was sure to find groups of drinkers. Michael was the kind of guy who could get along with anybody. Anybody with a drink in their hand. He'd sit in the field and tell stories as the moon bobbed above the apartment buildings of Central Park West. On that spring night in 97... Michael was with a group of drinkers listening to the radio. The moon was full and coated the field in a fragile blue. Suddenly, two faces emerged out of the dark, a boy and a girl, very young, their faces as round and white as the moon. Do you recognize me? the girl asked. It's Daphne from Alcoholics Anonymous. Michael vaguely remembered. Daphne. Right. She had some beers and some malt liquor, she said. Did he want to join her and her friend down by the lake? It was the time of night when all the drifters drift apart. Police come through with searchlights and disperse them, and drinkers retreat from the fields to the deeper solitude of the wooded areas. 
Sir Michael said, yeah, sure, why not? He could tie on another couple of drinks and still get home to his mother's place before it was too late. He left the group and went with the children. It was the last time anyone saw him alive. In a few fateful hours, police would discover him floating in the moonlight in the middle of the lake, his nose cut off, his guts spilled out. But for now, nobody thought about it as Michael wandered away from strawberry fields and stepped into the maze. When you're in Central Park, that vast green heart in the middle of Manhattan, you're a New Yorker, like everybody else. The park has a way of bringing people together and mixing them up. It doesn't matter how much money you make. In here, you're just another cyclist zooming down the trail, or another parent buying ice cream for their child, or another baseball player striking out at the plate. If the park was the only thing you knew about New York, you might think the city was a perfect democracy. But the truth is, once people exit through its stone walls, they return to a society deeply stratified by race, gender and class. By those more material measurements, it would be hard to find a more unlikely pair than Daphne Abdella and Christopher Vasquez. They were both 15 years old on that night in 97, but the paths they'd taken in life had been almost complete opposites. Daphne never knew the identity of her biological parents. At birth, she'd been given up for adoption and was taken in by an extremely wealthy couple. Her adoptive father, Angelo, was an Israeli-born executive with a successful food company in New Jersey. And her adoptive mother, Catherine, was a French-born model. They lived in the Majestic, a twin-towered apartment building on Central Park West, one of those looming Art Deco masterpieces you can see from inside the park. Once upon a time, the Majestic was home to famous gangsters like Lucky Luciano and Mayor Lansky. Now it was home to corporate executives like Angelo, and units could easily fetch $2 million or more. But Daphne always had an uneasy relationship with her luxurious environment and the parents who made it possible. From an early age, something was clearly different about her. Unlike other children, a shadow always seemed to fall on Daphne. She never smiled and never laughed. She seemed to live in an unhappy interior world that no one could decipher. When it came to interacting with others, she was rude and stubborn and always did what she wanted, no matter the consequences. She joined a swim team called the West Side Marlins and was instructed by her coach never to stop in the water. You had to keep pushing to the very end of the lap. But Daphne didn't care. When she wanted, she would just float there in the middle of the pool and no matter how intensely the coach hollered at her, she wouldn't budge. Moments like that were funny 
almost impressive to the other more compliant children. But other instances were downright ugly. She once got upset at a black member of the swim team and used a racial slur. But when her mother Catherine tried getting her to apologize, Daphne simply wouldn't. It was hard to tell whether she understood that what she'd done was wrong or whether she enjoyed being perceived as evil, set apart from other children by her status as a villain. Either way, it was clear to everybody that Angelo and Catherine had no control over their child. In fact, Angelo was once driven to file a harassment complaint against her after she'd slapped him. But it was Catherine who bore the brunt of Daphne's rages. Angelo was a workaholic, hardly ever home, and left Catherine to do everything. But mother and daughter never connected. Out in public, Daphne would walk three feet ahead of her, as if there were no relation between them at all. In some ways, Catherine seemed to exacerbate Daphne's insecurities. Catherine had worked as a model and was a paragon of conventional beauty. Daphne, on the other hand, was pudgy and boyish, with short brown hair and plump, infantile cheeks. She was embarrassed by her weight, once even attending a weight reduction camp, but the pounds came back anyway. Catherine tried encouraging her, buying her elegant designer dresses that might bring out her femininity. But these languished in Daphne's closet, while she chose baggy grunge-style outfits that concealed her figure. The clothes also concealed other things. Daphne started drinking at a very young age, and by 15, she was considered a full-blown alcoholic. Using a fake ID, she'd buy six-packs, hide the bottles in her pockets, and hang out in Carl Schurz Park, a slender green patch on a curve of the East River. That park also contained multitudes. The official residence of the mayor is in Carl Schurz Park, but it's also a place where troubled young people gather to swig liquor, smoke pot, and pick fights. In the same way that she wore clothes to defy her mother's beauty, Daphne took to hanging out in Carl shirts to defy her safe, wealthy upbringing. She became one of the bigger personalities among the teens, teaching everybody French swear words she'd picked up from her mother. She liked to play a game called slap boxing, in which two teens strike each other with open hands and see who can last the longest. Even when she was getting destroyed, Daphne would keep going, forcing the opponent to take mercy on her rather than add to the damage. But she never fully embraced the status of a street kid. Daphne always needed to stand out from the crowd, and she couldn't help but reveal her origins in that world high up in the majestic. She carried a beeper and a cell phone and liked to flash wads of cash. She once took a bunch of kids to Times Square and bought them all fake IDs. And anyone who might have thought the girl in the dumpy clothes grew up poor only needed to see the brand name sneakers on her feet to know it was a pose. For Christopher Vasquez, on the other hand, 
being working class wasn't just a style. He grew up in a New York so totally different from the Majestic, it might as well have been another city. His father managed a store, his mother worked as a secretary at a school, and they lived in a fourth-floor walk-up on the edge of Spanish Harlem. He clung to the single city block, and he clung to his mother. Christopher was briefly a Boy Scout and briefly an altar boy, but any public interaction seemed to frighten and exhaust him and cast him back upon the safety of his home. One day, at age nine, Christopher suddenly got up from his desk in his third-grade classroom and fled the room in terror. For no apparent reason, he would not return to school. Whenever he even contemplated the idea, he would suffer a severe anxiety attack. Psychiatrists diagnosed him with agoraphobia, a fear of crowds, and prescribed him Zoloft for his depression and Orazepam as a sedative. Christopher studied at home for two years, seldom leaving the apartment to face the throngs outside, then tried a variety of schools, seeking one that wouldn't trigger his phobia. Finally, he landed at Beekman High School in Midtown Manhattan. The school maintained small class sizes and prided itself on being able to work with children suffering from physical and mental difficulties. He was making some progress, and then the unthinkable happened. His parents split up. His father moved out, leaving him and his mother behind in the walk-up. That's when Christopher's personality began to change. Even the security of home had been shredded. The lesson was clear. Nowhere was safe. He needed to harden himself. At school, this former altar boy joined a gang called the East Coast Vandalists. They weren't especially tough, just a glorified group of graffiti artists. But Christopher took the image more seriously than most. At parties, he would pick fights for no reason at all, then lay the kid out with a well-placed punch. He used to cling to his mother for dear life, but now he stayed up past his curfew and wouldn't respond to her calls. Kids at school noticed a new blankness in his face, a chilling mask of indifference to everything and everyone. One evening, Christopher was wandering through Central Park when a vicious fight broke out between two strangers. He found himself watching as the men exchanged blows, then fell to the ground and rolled in a knot of violence, both of their faces slathered with blood. Beside him, also watching the fight, was a girl with short brown hair and baggy clothes. She said her name was Daphne. The two of them watched the fight with fascination. Something in the sight of violence calling to them both. Police finally separated the men and arrested them. And a newspaper reporter on the scene interviewed the girl who'd witnessed the brawl. This makes me think not to trust a single person, Daphne was quoted as saying. Christopher knew exactly what she meant. The two of them had started hanging out. They both had rollerblades and liked to swoop through the maze of Central Park at night, the shadows speeding past. Then they'd drink beers and talk shit about all the people they hated, 
all the people who'd let them down. Their relationship wasn't romantic, exactly. Daphne was dating someone else, but there was a certain tension between them, an electric charge that made other people nervous. Alone, they were just lost and lonely kids, but together, they had a new energy, a potential that neither of them fully understood. Flying on rollerblades through the park at night, they were pulled forward by this energy, as if the maze were leading somewhere. In their jacket pockets, each of them carried a knife. Daphne had a switchblade. Christopher had a four-inch folding knife. They liked to show them to each other. In the moonlight of the park, the metal was clean and blue and perfectly sharp. They were ready. But for what? May 22nd, 1997. The last night of Michael McMorrow's life began like any other for Daphne and Christopher. She brought a six-pack of Coors to Carl Schurz and started picking random fights. Daphne had been dating a tall, stocky boy named Brian Miller, and she spent a while making out with him. But Brian had an early curfew and went home. Then Daphne threw herself on another guy she'd once dated, but he wasn't interested. He shook her off, got on his bike, and rode away. One thing Daphne couldn't stand was rejection. Being left behind by Brian and the other guy sent her into a spiral of rage. She played a round of slapboxing and got pulverized by a boy, but somehow that didn't snap her out of it. She started going around to people in Carl Schurz saying over and over, I'm going to kill someone. I'm going to slice someone. No one took her seriously. Daphne talked a big game about how dangerous she was, often telling stories of cutting people with her switchblade. But everyone knew they were fabrications, just another way for the girl from the Majestic to sound tough. Only one kid seemed to believe in her. Christopher. Friends had warned him to stop hanging out with Daphne. There was something unnatural about their friendship, something that was changing him for the worse. Hadn't he heard? She'd been kicked out of Loyola, that fancy private school on Park Avenue, for always acting out. But Christopher told them they were wrong about her. He admired her defiance and independence, how she just did what she wanted when she wanted. When Daphne approached him that night in May and said she was going to slice someone, Christopher felt the four-inch blade in his pocket and said, I'm in. Meanwhile, Michael McMorrow made his way through the maze, its trails lined with rose bushes and witch hazel up to strawberry fields. This is a small, scenic patch of the park, named after the Beatles song, Strawberry Fields Forever. The song was written by John Lennon, who was gunned down outside his apartment building on Central Park West in 1980. Yoko Ono scattered his ashes here in Central Park, and the spot was formally dedicated to his memory. Sitting in Strawberry Fields, you can see Lennon's building in the background. 
you can also see the majestic. Michael met up with a mixed group of drinkers and homeless people. Friends sometimes warned him not to go out like this, and certainly never alone. Stay out of the park at night, his neighbor once said. The demons come out. They pointed to the unsolved murder of a jogger in 95. In the early hours of a September morning, a Brazilian immigrant was training for the New York City Marathon when she was suddenly dragged off the trail, beaten beyond recognition, and left for dead. Two years later, despite hundreds of tips from the public, the case still wasn't solved. The killer could still be out there, waiting. But Michael thought this was all stereotypical nonsense. Back in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like there was a new story every day about a mugging or a rape in the park. But the character of New York was changing. The city was rapidly gentrifying, police were everywhere, and Mayor Rudy Giuliani prided himself on the decline of the crime rate. The murder of the jugger was an exception, not the rule. And anyway, Michael was a big, strong guy. As a kid, he became famous throughout his neighborhood in the Bronx for climbing Columbia Rock in the Yosemite Valley and diving off its highest peak. He could handle himself. As midnight neared and the full moon swelled above the skyline, two little kids came awkwardly stomping over the grass on their rollerblades. They were going from person to person, asking if anyone had some pot to sell. But no one was interested in selling drugs to teens tonight. So while the boy lay out on the grass and stared at the stars, the girl zipped off on her rollerblades to buy some beer. She returned with four six-packs of Heineken and started distributing the bottles among the people gathered there. Michael took one, and that's when the girl introduced herself as Daphne. Apparently, they'd seen each other before, at Alcoholics Anonymous. Suddenly, the three-wheel police vehicle swept its spotlight across strawberry fields, and the group dispersed. Daphne still had more to drink, so she invited Michael to join her and her friend Christopher at the gazebo by the lake. The police wouldn't find them there. Michael wasn't yet ready to go home, and so even though the kids were almost 30 years his junior, he agreed. They entered the maze together and made their way to the gazebo. The lake is the still, peaceful heart of the park, and tonight it was like a cool blue mirror reflecting the bone-white moon above. Other park dwellers heard the screams, but there were no witnesses to what happened in the gazebo, and the truth became lost in a maze of its own, a confusion of lies and half-truths and evasions. Some claimed that Michael made a sexual pass at Daphne, and in a vicious fit of jealousy, Christopher took out the knife. Maybe it never would have happened if Michael hadn't crossed the line like that. But others contended that it was always going to happen, that the kids had entered the park that night with one thing on their minds. I'm going to slice someone. Either way, Michael had been warned of demons in the park, but never thought they would appear as kids. After drinking a couple of beers, Christopher suddenly seized his four-inch blade and plunged it into Michael's heavy gut. Then the boy withdrew the blade 
and kept slashing. Michael tried blocking the thrusts, but the girl kicked his legs out from beneath him. The stabs kept coming, all over his body, and the blood was draining fast. But Michael's bull-like strength got him on his feet. Then the girl kicked his legs out a second time, and there was no getting up. Already he'd suffered dozens of stab wounds, the gashes spurting, the holes oozing, a lake of blood spreading on the ground. Michael had only one recourse, to beg for his life. His mouth dripping with blood, his voice choked by it. He pleaded with the kids to spare him. It was the girl who spoke next. Slice him from ear to ear, she said. Christopher straddled the man and dragged his knife along the throat, breaking the windpipe, spilling the arteries, and nearly severing the head. When he was dead, they kept going. By the time they were through, every part of Michael's body had suffered a stab wound deep enough to kill him. He'd been stabbed 34 times and six times in the heart. The kids decided not to leave the body there. What if it disappeared? Or what if no one could ever identify him? Like clumsy butchers, they got to work, sawing off his hands, slicing off his nose, carving a huge hole in his belly, pulling out globs of intestines, and packing the empty carcass with rocks. He's a fatty, Daphne said. He'll sink. Under the stark moonlight, they dragged the pulp of a corpse to the edge of the lake and pushed it in. But to their surprise, Michael didn't sink. He just floated there, his drifting mass disturbing the mirror-like stillness of the lake. When they realized it was useless, the kids got on their rollerblades and fled. But once they were out of the maze and in the bright streetlight, they realized they were covered with blood. They took refuge in the Majestic. Rushing past the doorman and through the lobby, they went to a bathroom in the back of the building. What Daphne didn't know was that her father had already called the police to report her missing after she'd failed to come home for her curfew. The doorman had been instructed to notify police if he saw the girl, and so he did. It wasn't long before a nearby cruiser pulled up to the building and an officer came in, around one o'clock in the morning. He asked the doorman where he could find the girl, and the doorman indicated the bathroom. When the officer opened the door, he found the two kids naked in the bathtub, cleaning each other. The water was up to their ankles and brown with diluted blood. But Daphne had an excuse. She said they'd wiped out on their rollerblades and suffered injuries, and the officer believed her. After all, he was just there to put the missing persons report to bed. And what kind of trouble could kids that age get into anyway? When the girl was returned to her family, he got back in the cruiser and didn't think anything about it. Driving by the stone wall of Central Park West, he had no idea that just a few hundred meters away, a gutted corpse was sailing on the lake. Meanwhile, high up in the Majestic, something was at work in Daphne's mind. 
Maybe the iron smell of the blood had turned her stomach. Or maybe Michael's pleas were still ringing in her ears. Because she felt compelled to call 911, as if worried no one would ever find the body. She said a friend of hers had jumped in the lake in Central Park and hadn't surfaced. Then she slammed the receiver on the hook. Police immediately traced the call back to the Majestic and sent out a call for a cruiser to check it out. The officer circled back to Central Park West, entered the apartment and found Daphne eating a bowl of macaroni and cheese. When she caught sight of the officer, she launched into a state of apparent hysteria. Something horrible had happened and she was out of her mind with worry. Her father warned her not to tell police anything without a lawyer, but she ignored the advice and said there was a body in the lake in Central Park. Now it became clear that she wasn't hysterical at all. It was just an act, and this innocent-looking face, with its round cheeks and little slits for eyes, concealed a mind of cold calculation. This was someone able to eat a bowl of mac and cheese after scrubbing someone's guts from her hands. The officer asked if she could show him what she meant, and Daphne led him down to the shoreline of the lake. There was Michael, just as she'd left him, though a little farther out now, peacefully turning in the breezeless night. She said she'd tried to save him by administering CPR, a technique she'd learned on the swim team, but the officer had trouble believing her. Forty pounds of intestine were floating next to Michael's corpse. Why would you give CPR to a disemboweled man? When photographs of the killers appeared in newspapers and on TV, it seemed impossible that they could be responsible for slaughtering and mutilating an innocent man in Central Park. Daphne was dubbed the babyface killer for her innocent appearance, and the murder seemed to call into question all the progress New York City had made in its fight against violent crime. In the story, people perceived some essential statement about this decadent, apathetic decade, when children grew up too fast, when parents didn't know where they were, when the media was nothing but relentless violence. Word circulated that on the night of the crime, Daphne and Christopher had gone to Blockbuster Video and rented Reservoir Dogs, the bloody Quentin Tarantino film that culminates in the mutilation of a police officer. The babyface killers were the children of the future, where people killed for kicks. But there was a problem with bringing them to justice. Nobody could say for sure who'd done the killing. Daphne's parents hired Benjamin Brathman, a lawyer famous for defending Michael Jackson in his sexual assault cases, and Brathman persuaded her to plead guilty to manslaughter in exchange for not testifying against Christopher at his trial. Without her testimony, prosecutors had no choice but to back off from a full-on murder charge and to lower it to first-degree manslaughter. In the end, Daphne and Christopher were sentenced to just three and a half 
to 10 years. Jurors sobbed at the reading of the verdict, wishing they could have put them away for longer. But they simply couldn't agree on who had actually done it. Had Christopher murdered Michael in a fit of jealousy and Daphne was only a terrified accomplice trying to resuscitate a dying man? Or had Daphne corrupted the one-time altar boy, brought him into her shadowy world and participated in the murder as an equal? Without Daphne's testimony, there was no way of knowing. They each served seven years, and in jail they seemed to revert to innocent children, as if the high walls and cold bars provided the structure they'd always needed. Working in an industrial training program, Daphne grew more and more repentant for Michael's murder, maintaining that she'd never wanted him to die. She said that, upon her release, she would devote her life to working with children. Daphne and Christopher were paroled in January 2004. Now they were in their 20s, not children anymore, but like two kids coming home from a day in the park, they retreated to their parents' homes. Christopher climbed the long stairs up to his mother's top-floor apartment, and Daphne took the elevator to her parents' suite in the Majestic. In the meantime, a memorial to the murdered Michael McMorrow had appeared in Central Park. It might not be as grand a tribute as Strawberry Fields, but the park bench bears a little plaque with his name. Parkgoers can sit there, perhaps drinking a beer, and watch the people passing by, just as Michael liked to do. On a bitterly cold winter afternoon, just two days after Daphne's release, someone noticed a note stuck to the bench beside a bouquet of frozen carnations. It read, Rest easy, I tried to save you. And it was signed with a D. A frigid wind swept through. The light was fading fast. It was time to get home. Soon the dark would take over the park, and who knows what waited in the maze. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.